Welcome to episode 260 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. As with many things clean energy these days, China's wind turbine industry is thriving, while the West is not. Supply chain disruptions, geopolitical tensions, inflationary pressures, and delays on project execution have combined to create financial losses for Western manufacturers. Meanwhile, Chinese companies are profitable, or at least less unprofitable. They're extending the commercial life cycle of their products, and they're introducing new products as quickly as they can. So what does this mean for the global wind energy industry? I'll be speaking with Endri Licho, a principal analyst, global wind supply chain and technology of, of international consultancy Wood McKenzie to find out. So welcome to the interview, Endry. Thank you so, so much for the invitation. Well, you're you're joining us from uh, from Denmark today, which is uh, kind of the European Europe's wind capital. And uh, I was just talking about Orsted the other day, which is a very very large company that does a lot of wind installations. But my take from the from the what I've read this this year, and we haven't, I admit, we haven't done a lot of reporting on the wind industry. But my take is this has been a 2023 was a tough year for for wind. Is, is that fair to say? It is fair. It is fair to say 2023 and obviously 2022 and 2021 and 2020, I have to admit, have been uh, very tough years for uh, for wind industry in general uh, and more specifically for the for the supply chain, especially the previous two to three years. Uh, starting from the uh, disruptions that uh, COVID brought into our life in general, but more specifically into the wind supply chain, um, and then expanded with the inflationary pressure and the geopolitical tension the, that has as a result that the global wind supply chains to, to defragment it, if I may say, uh, in general, and therefore uh, to, to create some um, headwinds as we have quoted many many times in many of our of our reports um, however at the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024 is leaving some sort of um, positive note or at least an optimistic note if you if you want um, considering that uh, key players on the wind supply chain starting from the uh, wind manufacturers, including Vestas, for example, uh, GE, uh, SGRE, Nortex, these players uh, have recorded heavy losses during the previous uh, years, with the culmination of being in 2020, by the end of 2022, where they recorded closely to five billion, uh, five to six billion uh, losses, um, and that's that's a massive loss for for the industry. But at the end of 2023, as I said, um, considering the latest financial reports, is leaving a, a positive note for the future. And at the end of the day, we can say that they are seeing the end of the tunnel. Now, I was looking at the Lazard levelized cost of energy estimates the other day and was surprised to find that solar and wind, and if we're at the, the bottom of the error bar, right? So the best case scenario, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're both about $24 a megawatt hour US, and which is far and away the, the lowest cost of, of generating electricity. And wind and solar are about the same. They're kind of neck and neck. So why are we seeing such enormous amounts of, of wind, or sorry, enormous amounts of solar uh, built, particularly in China? We're seeing a lot of rooftop solar around the world. 
um, and not so much wind when they're both relatively the same cost? Yeah, there is. there are a lot of assumptions, you know, when we are doing the LCOE and a lot of justification behind uh, this one. Um, the reason is that right now um, the solar uh, industry, and without being an expert on the solar at least, but the solar industry uh, has been commoditized, if I may say, and that uh, allows uh, massive economies of scale. Also, the fact that uh, the vast majority if I recall correct, more than or close to 90% of the solar supply chain is concentrated in China that allows uh, enormous economies of scale to, to the rest of the world. And at the end of the day, let's not forget that personally, I believe the biggest difference has to do with what we are calling the lead time effect. The lead time effect re refers to the time that you are starting building your project or even before planning your project up to the finalization and to the, to the conclusion of the project. That means that on the solar, it's relatively smaller or not relatively, much more smaller than uh, in wind. While uh, on wind, we are seeing in many markets up to 10 years lead time from the time that you are starting to, to plan your project until the final execution. And obviously that leaves a lot of uh, exposes and a lot of macro and micro fluctuation. Well, isn't that interesting? Now, I didn't know that. So we're talking about lead times of two to three years for solar farm projects. And that accords with what I'm seeing in Canada, for example. Um, up until the time the Alberta government last year imposed a, a moratorium, a seven-month moratorium on wind and solar, uh, two or three years was about the, the, the length of time it took to build a solar farm. Um, not as much wind in Canada as of late as, as, as solar. And, and so up to 10 years, I mean, I can see where things change a lot in 10 years. Costs change a lot, permitting problems. Um, there's a lot of pushback now from NIMBYs, not in my backyards, exactly. you know, exactly. who don't want the supposedly in the ugly wind turbines. So you may Inflation as well, uh, as, uh, if I may add inflation as well. And just imagine if you are a developer right now and you have, you're bringing your project right now in 2024 and you have started your planning, I'm not saying in 2014, but let's say in 2019, uh, just imagine we're living in a totally different world in 2019. Yes, that's a, that's exactly right. I, I would agree with you on that one. Um, one a, a consistent theme of late in in my journalism has been the overwhelming um, advantage or um, dominance of China uh, in clean energy industry. So the manufacturing of the equipment that the technology that makes clean energy, like wind and solar, and then heat pumps and EVs on the demand side. And here we see it again in 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 the wind industry. So why is why is China doing relatively better than the West? Is it because they've driven they've manu, you know they're they become so big the manufacturers that they're they have economies of scale and they've driven the cost down? Um, partially yes, this is the the easy let's say uh, explanation. But there are also other reasons behind this one. Um, it's fair to say that for for wind as well. As as we as I said for for the solar, um, China has become the epicenter of the global wind supply chain, and uh, has become the epicenter, uh, including the raw materials availability, the R and D, uh, the manufacturing capacity, and the specialized trained labor. So all of these uh, are favoring uh, China 
to 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 become the the epicenter, as I said, of the global wind uh, supply chain. Now, uh, this is a little bit off topic, uh, but you work in you, while we may be talking about uh, wind turbines today in the industry today. Um, you're plugged into the idea, and I and I'm inferring this from the, from your the document uh, that I was reading about the arms race. The, yep. And and I often talk about how um, the Americans in 2020 coming out, you know, when, when the pandemic started, they they realized how vulnerable they were relying on Chinese uh, supply chains. And they determined that they weren't they were going to change that and they were going to build their own industry and their own supply chains or at least, you know, deal with friendly uh, countries like uh, like Europe and Canada and, and Mexico. And and. It seems to me that as the inexorable transition from fossil fuels continues over the next 20, 30 years, that the, the, the country that dominates the manufacture of energy technology and those supply chains, geopolitical power goes along with it, economic power goes along with it, and, and it seems like China is not resting on its laurels. It's continuing to expand. It's investing hundreds of billions of dollars in in growing this capacity, even though in a lot of industries they have excess capacity. What's your sort of general take as somebody in the industry, an observer, on that global clean energy arms race? Mm -hmm. In in general, before going to that one, allow me very simply to to add one one comment uh, regarding China and uh, the, the concentration. Let's not forget that at the end of the day the vast majority of what is produced in China is for China. Uh, there is obviously uh, some uh, some for exports, but, um, and without, uh, sorry, just putting some rough numbers here, uh, more than, a, uh, or close to 80 to 85% is for internal consumption, if I may say. And this is because, uh, as you mentioned, there is um, an overall trend to reduce the dependency from uh, from uh, China, uh, from from the Western uh, governments. Uh, you have seen the IRA, which is focused on uh, developing even further the the domestic U.S. supply chain. The Wind Action Plan that came recently uh, in public is also aimed to tackle that um, uh, that purpose. So um, we are seeing more protectionism, if I may say. Uh, across the wind, uh, both onshore and offshore. Offshore is a little bit different because due to the size, it needs to be to the same market, but we are seeing um, in general a trend of um, removing or uh, living a little bit outside of, of China. Um, now going to on the on the arms race, here we need to, to admit that there are also two different stories. Uh, the And that has to do with the financial health of the uh, wind manufacturers in Western and in, uh, in China. Uh, and also with these, uh, I, I, I said on, on that uh, re report, on that editorial piece, that there is a unique landscape in China that favors the, this uh, sizable increase 
of the, of the turbines, which does not exist exactly in uh, in the Western markets. Well, can you describe that landscape for us? I'm I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious. So so first of all, um, as as I said before, it has to do with the financial health of the manufacturers and of the supply chain in general. Uh, the Western uh, manufacturers and supply chain companies have been extremely hit uh, by the by the last three years uh, by the turmoil on the on the global wind, uh, losing billions. Also, uh, I think that we have all seen uh, in the headlines uh, many um, uh, titles around quality issues uh, on the on the Western uh, OEMs. Um, so these are things that, at the end of the day, they are making the Western uh, wind manufacturers more reluctant to invest uh, further uh, on uh, on new technology uh, and to expand more or less the life cycle of their current uh, portfolio. Also, um, again, linked with the financial health, um, they they don't have the right now the, the ability to invest uh, millions uh, and it requires three digit millions for the development of a new product. There's a theme running through here. Uh, and I, when I say that, I mean, through many of my energy talks interviews and, and interviews I do uh, in other formats. And that is that the that China has managed to uh, perfect the formula. Uh, it manages to scale things up, keep quality high, keep uh, prices low. They're providing an internal market to stimulate that growth. Uh, my pet theory is that uh, we're seeing it now with with Chinese EV manufacturers moving into into Europe in a big way, and being very 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 competitive. Uh, and we're going to see that I think Chinese manu uh, you know solar panel panel manufacturers, wind uh, turbine manufacturers, all are going to be increasing their exports, uh, not necessarily to the EU and the US, but into places like Africa. And Latin America, and you know Southeast Asia, and places like they're going to use the Belt and Road Initiative to support those domestic manufacturers because they have all the, the excess capacity, right? And and I see you nodding your head. So does this sound? That's my pet theory. Is there? Does that sound like a reasonable anticipation of the next five to ten years? We we made a similar uh, analysis as well uh, that we we are foreseeing that in the coming ten years the Chinese exports on on the wind will uh, have the potential to achieve up to or a little bit more than 100 gigawatts cumulatively through the ten year period uh, outside of China. Um, as you very correctly uh, mentioned, we don't see a threat for the uh, European markets and the US markets. These are extremely well-protected markets. But uh, again, leveraging the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, there are hundreds of other <laughs> countries around the world. Uh, in Africa, as you mentioned, especially in the North Africa, uh, in Middle East, right? Which we are seeing a huge uh, potential, wind potential, um, and also in the rest of the uh, Asia. And also in Latin America, right? Right, and the framework in which I understand this uh, issue is very often the uh, the modeling and the transition narratives, the energy transition narratives. So OPEC is slow, 
the IEA is a fast uh, transition, and then there are the fastest transition uh, narratives like around Rocky Mountain Institute and, and others. And the every time I do an interview like this, I think about the, the, the assumptions in the OPEC um, World Oil Outlook 2045 about how you know, the modelers uh, say that they're, they're assuming that governments are tiring of clean energy subsidies and policies and and they're going to go back to oil and gas, uh, you know, particularly not out. And I mean, outside of the OECD countries, so U.S. and in Europe and a few others. And we're not seeing that. What, what was no. the evidence? The evidence shows that, in fact, the appetite for cheap, clean, uh, easy to 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 build uh, energy is growing in those markets. And and is that your perception or what's your take? Exactly, exactly. It's, it's also our, our perception that we are not seeing a significant slowdown on the on the appetite for, for green uh, energy and more specifically for wind as well. Um, obviously, we are going to achieve, uh, as soon as we're uh, getting closer to the 2050 landmark, uh, we're going to see further uh, wind and renewable penetration in general, uh, that, and that penetration will not only cover our electricity needs, but also other needs. And uh, what we are already seeing in many countries, especially in the Middle East, as mentioned before, is that they are coupling wind with uh, storage, wind with uh, green hydrogen production, especially with green hydrogen production is the new wave that all these players as I said, in the Middle East especially, are uh, eager to, to jump in and to invest heavily. Yeah, the, the irony of uh, OPEC, which is led by Saudi Arabia, are making this argument while the Saudi government does exactly the opposite. They're using their public investment fund, their wealth, uh, sovereign wealth fund, to invest to invest in huge amounts of solar and, and, uh, and wind and hydrogen, and even looking to build an EV industry, subsidize the, the creation of an EV industry in Saudi Arabia. The irony of that uh, is not lost on me. Uh, and and there's the narrative, and then there's what the evidence and the data says. And I think that you, you're quite right about, about that. Now, one of the, the, the key points uh, that you make about the wind industry going forward, is particular, if, particularly if the West wants to be competitive, is automation automation of factories. And that seems to be a Chinese uh, a strength. Uh, what can you tell us about what, what, let me ask this question. Why is automation key? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's key because it can bring the cost uh, down, first of all, uh, and it can, it can secure um, relatively similar quality across the, uh, across the board, across the manufacturing process. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, let's not forget that, uh, as you mentioned, one of the reasons why wind is so competitive is exactly the cost from the LCOE perspective, from the levelized cost of energy perspective that it can bring. And automation can uh, significantly reduce the times of manufacturing, can re significantly reduce the labor requested. And let's not forget that some of the uh, components that are required for for a wind turbine are among the most um, labor intensive uh, components. For example, a blade, especially in the offshore, may require up to 2,000 man hours to be built, right? Um, so it's all about cost, cost out into in that perspective. 
And is that why you recommend that the, particularly the Western OEMs, slow down the, the turbine arms race? And, and I can see where you're going with this, because even though the Chinese companies are doing the opposite, they're introducing all sorts of new technologies and, and different uh, products. But um, it seems, if I'm reading this correctly, what you're suggesting for the Western companies is, look, get your supply chain issues sorted, get some standard products, get back to being profitable, and and then once you're there, then maybe you can worry about you know branching out and and expanding and and diversifying your your product mix. Is am I, am I reading that correctly? Um, yes. Allow me only just to make one small note here that this type of strategic recommendation are reflecting not only to the Western uh, manufacturer but also to, to the Chinese because uh, let's not forget that China is scaling up excessively. Ex uh, sorry aggressively uh, and uh, for the very first time 2023 was the year that uh, the average turbine installed on the onshore uh, in China surpassed or leapfrogged the Western market had never been before. Um, so in, in China they installed uh, 5.4 megawatt on average turbine while in the rest of the world 5.1 megawatt and the same on uh, the, the offshore as well, which they installed the 9.5 megawatt average turbine versus 9.4 in, uh, in the rest of the world. So, um, and if you saw on, again, on one of the graphs that uh, we released, you will see that the warranty provisions, the cost that actually the manufacturers are paying is going up, not only for the Western, OEMs, but for the Chinese. So this is uh, a Catholic, if I may say, uh, or a universal uh, message or recommendation. Um, but yes, uh, we are proposing standardization, uh, slow down of the arms race, not pause, that will never happen, simply slow down uh, and uh, efforts to standardize and to reduce the complexity of the product portfolio that they are maintaining. What are we going to see in government policies around the world that support wind? Um, it looks to me like the Americans um, are kind of getting their their issues sorted out. There were some, you know, cancellation of and very high profile cancellation of wind projects on the East Coast uh, last year, and it looks like maybe those are, are at least some of them are going to be revived. Um, does wind? Can we expect? government policy to be very or more supportive of wind projects going forward? We are already seeing uh, an unprecedented uh, support from from the from the governments or from the authorities around the world. Um, we have also highlighted in many of our reports that maybe this is the golden era from policy supportive uh, on, on wind in, in general. And uh, this is reflected on the increased uh, PPA, so purchase uh, power agreements that uh, they are uh, they are signing, and also from the increased ceiling price that they are offering with uh, on on the new uh, auctions or on the new power tenders. So, at the end of the day, that was something that the the whole industry was screaming about um, because they need to take into consideration inflation, they needed to take in consideration the increased cost that they were facing. And as I said again, they increased lead time from the beginning of the project until the final execution. And this is another area that they are trying to tackle to uh, faster the, the permission of these projects. 
Andrea, as we wrap up our conversation, I, I want to ask you a question that has been top of mind for me recently because um, with there's been some pushback in North America on on wind and solar. And one of the arguments is that uh, the power grids uh, aren't ready yet for intermittent uh, power, uh, you know, inverter-based resources, as they're called within the industry. And I came across an International Energy Agency uh, document uh, from a year or two ago, and it talked about the, the six phases of integrating uh, uh, variable resources into power grids. And the, the point, my key takeaway from this is if you want more wind and solar, the first two phases are very little amounts and, and system operators can integrate those fairly easy with, with projections and planning and, and so on. But once you get into phase three, you have you must uh, start to re-engineer your grid. You're simply, your existing grid cannot handle more than X amount of, of renewables. And it's, you know, I mean, the technology is all there. It might be battery storage. It, it might be new transmission technology. It might be the virtual power plants. But I mean, this is, it's not like we don't know how to do this stuff. And how, if we're talking about the expansion of the wind industry around the world, so more a lot more electricity uh, generated by wind, it seems to me then that the the power grids that those those wind turbines are feeding into must be re-engineered. They must be modernized. They have to become smart grids. On and on and on. How is from your take? What what do power grids around the world look like? Are they keeping pace? No, I would put it very simply. <laughs> no, they're not giving pace. Um, unfortunately, this is a very, very big topic and probably one of the biggest bottlenecks that we are seeing right now, especially as we are going closer to the 2050s. Um, just to give a couple of figures here, we are forecasting that for the next decade, the average uh, growth rate globally in wind uh, would be 8.2%. So every year, 8.2% increase of the, of the installations, peaking by the by 2032 approximately to close to 180 gigawatts of new wind installations. Um, the grid is not following the same pace. It's, it's expanding to a much lower pace. It's also a heavy um, um, uh, finance, uh, for financially heavy uh, or intensive capital uh, investments that requires uh, a lot of motivation. And um, if we go or we narrow down a bit to, to the United States, right, let's not forget that uh, the grid that currently exists in the United States is a grid that was most more or less built by 20, uh, 1950, 1960, right? So that requires a massive deployment there to tackle the new uh, necessities of, of renewables across uh, the globe, especially when it comes to the offshore, especially when it comes to the new uh, onshore. And um, another, and this is my, my last point here, uh, let's not forget that there is a fundamental change on, on the renewables, especially on the wind, that we need to bring uh, the wind or the best areas are not close to the to the population centers. So we need to expand even further the grid to bring the energy produced into these remote areas to where are the population centers. So again, 
this is a huge uh, discussion that unfortunately we don't have much time right now, but I think bottom, the bottom line here is that the grid is not following the same pace as the wind expansion. Well, that I would certainly agree with that. I mean, that's my my layman's take on on the evidence and the the data that I'm seeing, uh, and and in the the interviews that I'm doing with experts like yourself, uh, and that that looks like it's going to be the key bottleneck over the next five to ten years for the expansion of of wind and solar. And exactly, this is the point here. Uh, just to highlight that, for example, last year when we were doing our market share, uh, our historic market share, uh, Vestas was able to mechanically install approximately 13.2, if I recall correct, uh, gigawatts globally, but was able to connect only 11.5 or or something like that, or a little bit less than than 11.5, and that has as a result for them to lose the the market the first position from the OEMs ranking because exactly they were not able to connect to the grid even though that they did they performed their job as they should right that that's fascinating and uh, I think we need to uh, well let me put it this way uh, I'll be watching with uh, keen attention how the how China tackles this issue because they're it's more of a command and uh, control economy you know what if the national government says okay look we're going to build more you know these huge solar panels out in the out in the uh, uh, mongolian desert and we're going to do a lot more wind and and all of that and then the, the planners can then turn their attention to the grid and say okay now we're ready to make some investments in the power grid so it can accommodate that and there's a disconnect that's not how it works in the west i mean certainly not how it no. works in canada it doesn't appear to be you know the given the chaos in the united states it's certainly not working that way there they're that's they're out of lock they're not in lockstep as the chinese seem to be no. they're no. they're kind of working against each other that's, that's a very valid point because uh, the the transmission line or the ultra high voltage transmission that uh, China has built during the, the, the last very few years uh, is uh, is a, is planned exactly to tackle that uh, bottleneck. And at the end of the day, uh, one of the key differences that we're seeing is that uh, renewables are at the heart of the 14th five-year plan as part of the... Uh, economical growth of China. And again, echo your words that uh, these ultra high voltage transmission lines are at the epicenter of the renewable expansion. Well, Henry, th this has been a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for this and for your insights. I think you're welcome for the invitation.